I'm excited. Uh, I love the holiday season. It's upon us. It means the madness of shopping has occurred. And so I need to do an impromptu poll. How many of you got out there and faced the, the crowds this weekend and did some shopping? Come on, admit it. I was out there. I saw some of you. I was out there. Yes. How many of you skip the whole thing and shop purely online and just skip the whole thing and do that? There's a few of you out there. Cool. How many of you have already Christmas shopped like in, this, in, in June? You were done. You were just already like you got your deals. Yeah, you guys are already there. And how, how many of you will just wait until after every crazy thing happens and then you'll, okay, yeah, most of you, you're, you're not going to mess with that. I love getting out there in the crazy and seeing it happen. I used to, now this was years ago, I was much younger and, and less wise, um, I used to bring a couple of my college kids out and we would record the, the crowds fighting for things. And then we'd do funny voiceover, like announcement videos for the youth group. And it was pretty funny. And it was like, they're fighting over, you know, uh, the last whatever for summer camp. And, and uh, we'd do funny videos and just kind of have fun with the whole experience. So, so ever since then, I've always been into going. What's funny now is um, I was kind of disappointed. I didn't see any fighting at all. I was out there and, you know, people were fighting more over parking spots because it was just so cold out there. No one wanted to park far away. But once I got in the building, everyone was pretty kosher. I only had one person be rude to me in the whole experience. And so I was glad that she was rude to me so I could at least say that someone was rude to me when I was out there because up until that point, I hadn't uh, hadn't experienced any uh, any rudeness. It was more just standing around waiting in line forever and making jokes about how everyone was going to be rude, but nobody was rude. So so uh, <laughs> so good job uh, over there in South Hill uh, and here in Puyallup shopping around i had my mom come into town which was awesome so grandma was here for the holidays and i love doing the uh doing the uh holiday thing with family my wife actually blitzed out of town and uh, became an aunt again this week and so she was down doing her auntie duties but she's back up right now and so uh excited to have her back and just be in the saddle ready to dive into what god's doing in this season in this moment at this time so today um, we are in between series uh starting next week we launch into our christmas series and uh, i'm really excited about that you're going to want to come and uh and celebrate with us each week and uh and we just wrapped up breathing room which was a perfect thing to talk about before the holidays and before the madness and before the shopping and how life is better with margin and so today i want to just hit one of my favorite bible stories and i was struck by this when when uh we were talking if you were in the last series with us and we were talking about uh as a kid bible stories that we remember and how sometimes we remember the story differently than it actually happened in the bible and we talked about like you know favorite bible stories from when you were a kid like noah but no one ever talks about the millions of people who died in the noah story and when we paint the nursery we never paint like under the water all the people that were just down there like we never talk about that part right we never talk about when we do daniel in the lion's den um you know we never talk about afterwards who actually got eaten by lions and that there was you know exciting parts like that like we miss some of the incredible parts of the story because we have this snapshot picture that we get at a certain age or hollywood gave us a certain picture of it and so today i'm going to talk about one of my favorite favorite guys from the scripture um because uh, i think he's yoked like me and uh, so we're going to talk about samson we're going to talk about Samson. Everyone was like, wait, what are you talking about? No one got the analogy. Like, only Ryan was with me there. <laughs> or, or everyone else just uh, uh, politely chuckled to themselves. But, but I want to talk about Samson today because we know Samson for something, right? He's famous for something. And we know he's famous for what? Well, we know he's famous for, for what? More than I have, right? Long, flowing locks, right? And, uh, and we know about Samson and who? Delilah. Delilah. Yes, right? 
But Samson's story is so much more than just Samson and Delilah. And so we're going to walk into his story. And I think sometimes Samson gets a bad rap because we have just a small five-minute or ten-minute version of Samson in our mind who is a guy who's just ruled by his passions, has no intelligence or wit or wisdom, and ultimately collapses and has one of maybe the greatest advantages that anyone ever had in all of Scripture. This incredible strength, yet, despite incredible strength, yet incredible weaknesses. And so we're going to talk a little bit about weaknesses. And the weakness I want to talk about this morning is the weakness of compromise. Compromise. Now, compromise is an incredible thing. Compromise is this thing that happens when we, when we just say, well, I know this is what I should do, but this instead is what I'm going to do. Right? Compromise is when we say, I know what I should do. But instead, this is what I do do. And we don't do the thing that we know that we should do. Now, here's the thing. Compromise isn't always like 180 degrees. Compromise isn't I should go left, but instead I'm going to go right. Sometimes compromise is I should go left, but I'm going to go just not quite as left as I think I should go. Right? Sometimes compromise is a measure of degrees. But here's the thing about degrees and small degrees of compromise. If this line right here is on direction with God, and I'm just one degree off. I'm just right here. I start pretty close, and I look pretty good. But over time, what happens? That one degree just drifts farther and farther and farther and farther and farther. And it's amazing how one simple small degree of compromise, if it's not dealt with, if it's not addressed, it can eventually take you to a place you never imagined you would go. But Pastor Mike, I was just, I was, it was just a little compromise. It was just a small degree away. And, you know, I just didn't, I wasn't quite honest on this one thing. I just didn't, you know, I didn't have an affair, but, but I gave my, my heart away. And I just started a relationship that, you know, was probably not appropriate, but I didn't go that far with it. But, but pretty soon you've emotionally invested with someone that you shouldn't have invested with. And you're farther and farther away than you ever imagined. Oh, I was going to be, you know, honest on that, on that paperwork, but it was just a little small thing. And, and I, you know, I just on my hours, I didn't quite put the right thing. And then I got a little bit used to it and I got a little bit further. A little bit further and all of a sudden you find yourself down a path there was a, a conflict that i needed to deal with and i knew i should have dealt with it and i knew that what happened wasn't true or wasn't right or wasn't good but i didn't really want to deal with it at the time because it just didn't feel like i you know i didn't have the energy i didn't want to do it so i just compromised and i let that behavior go and that small little compromise it acknowledged an empowered behavior that i should have never acknowledged and empowered and now what began is i just didn't want to deal with that one conflict now i have a massive conflict on my hands compromise a little compromise a little degree a little directional difference eventually ending so i was thinking about and this is kind of silly but i i'm old enough now to remember old commercials and uh, with nostalgia and so this is a commercial from 1992 all right but you're going to remember this. This is a commercial, and it'll be ingrained. If you're old enough to remember this, and you'll immediately know it. If you don't, I apologize. But this is a, uh, a Don't Do Drugs commercial from 1992. When I grow up, I want to be a track star. No one ever says, I want to be a junkie when I grow up. Don't let drugs get in the way of your dreams. 
All right. Do you remember that? There was a whole campaign of those commercials. There was, I, I actually almost did all of them because it was just so nostalgic to remember all of them. And there, some of them were just really sad. I mean, they did dark commercials in 1992. But, uh, but anyways, but, but that commercial was so relevant. Why? Because no one ever says at the beginning of compromise, I want to end up in the wrong place. No one ever says, well, I'm going to make this little small compromise because I want to end up in jail. No one ever says, I want to make this little small compromise uh, and not deal with this conflict because I want to end up divorced. Like no one ever looks at the end result of these incremental compromises and says, that's the direction I want to land. But still, we make these compromises. And still we do it. You know, I was thinking about uh, uh, guys I know that have have gone off the rails and lives I know that have gone off the rails. And several years ago, I think it was, man, 2008, um, I was part of a team of guys, uh, youth pastors at the time, and we were going to this really, really large church for a conference. And we were going to meet their team and uh, experience, you know, this, uh, this incredible conference. And uh, we were all excited about it. There was about 15 of us youth pastors. It was out of state. And this church was uh, in America, one of the largest churches in America at the time. And the pastor of this church was one of the most influential uh, pastors in America at the time. As a matter of fact, he was, you know, constantly near the president. And, uh, you know, he's the head of the National Association of Evangelicals. And it's like a big wig uh, in, in terms of uh, just Christian political uh, circles. And, and we were ready to go to this conference. And we were excited. We had tickets booked and hotels booked and flights booked and people from all up and down the West Coast ready to go uh, to this conference and, and see this big thing. And, you know, it's neat for pastors to have chances to do that, to see other things and just dream and get filled up and get your batteries charged. And, and in the midst of all of our planning, something catastrophic happened to the leader of that ministry. He actually was involved in a series of uh, uh, sexual affairs and things that were just really, really went sour. But it went sour really publicly it's all over the national news. It was just horrific. And so we have this planned trip to visit this body of believers who have now lost their leader to compromise. And we have to make this decision. Do we go? Like, do we even want to go? Like, we have tickets. <laughs> We've got uh, hotels planned. We've got other fun things. We're going to go see basketball games. And, like, you know, we're like everything's booked and ready to go. What do we do? And so we begin working with the associate pastor there and uh, i can say his name because no one knows him his name's rob and uh and we're working with rob and and uh and and he's like listen you know i don't know what's gonna happen and it's crazy and you know uh, we're about two months out and a long story short at the two-month mark he's like you guys if you want to come we'd love to have you guys and we're like let's do it i mean we're ready we're gonna go so we brought 15 uh young ministers out to this to this big church and they're going through what could only be one of the most catastrophic difficult things that a group of believers can go through i mean they're in the news all the time and we're sitting down with rob and there's 15 pastors, young, impressionable guys. And here's Rob, the number two guy now, by, by force, the number one guy at this church, 15,000 people. And he's been interviewed by CNN over and over again. People are calling him a liar, saying, you had to know something. You're the number two guy. And he's defending his own character while trying to explain how something as catastrophic like this could happen. And he didn't know it and see it. And, and Rob is sharp. He was actually graduated summa cum laude from Duke and was a tank commander in the Army before becoming a pastor. So he's no joke, okay? He's a sharp dude. And we're talking with him, 
the uh, and and he's saying I don't know how to tell people that I just didn't notice the compromises. I just didn't notice. The, I was, everyone was so busy and everything seemed so important and everything else was bigger. And I just didn't notice the compromises. And someone, I wish it was me, asked a profound question. It's a way better story if I had thought to ask this question, but it was one of my buddies. And so I, I can't steal the credit for it, uh, but I'm not going to say his name and get him the credit either. But someone else said it. <laughs> And asked him this profound question uh, because he's saying, you know, I've been on CNN and, you know, I've written this guy's messages. That's how close we are. And, and I, I've had to say I didn't know what was going on. And, and my buddy asked him, said, said, Rob, looking back, do you think there's anything in hindsight that you could point at and say, well, I should have known? And, and, and he stopped him because he thought, well, I hadn't thought about it in that paradigm. And he said this, and it's never left me. He said, Somewhere along the line, we left being passionate for things that were holy and godly, and we started allowing little things that were like humor that wasn't appropriate before became appropriate. And we wanted to be cool, so we made exceptions to things that we normally wouldn't have allowed as part of our team, just kind of became normal. Things like we had structure in place of accountability, but there were so many of us, and it was growing so fast that no one was really paying attention to those details anymore. And the things that had been in place to kind of call compromise, compromise, began to get let down under the momentum and excitement of growth, and and things were moving. And nobody was paying attention to the compromise. And what started as little, small, incremental compromise, jokes that never would have been appropriate in the presence of the Lord were now appropriate in the presence of us. Things that never would have been okay before had become okay. And what happened? Just compromise. Just a degree of compromise. I've never left that. It's always stayed with me, that, that power of just a simple compromise, taking us away from the will of God. So I got one more video clip from you. It's from a Christian movie, Courageous. And, and what you're about to see, it's a, it's a police force, and these guys have made a commitment to accountability, a commitment to hold each other accountable. But one of them has broken that commitment, and you're going to see how they deal with it here, and then we're going to get into the story of Samson. Hey, Sarge. You call me? Yeah. They're still doing motions in here, and i got to get back to testify. Would you mind running these down to evidence for me? Appreciate it. Okay. Sarge? Check an account before I turn it in? No, no, no. Don't lie to me. You got bags in your pocket right now.
You're not going to turn me in. You just make a big, ugly mess and embarrass the entire department. Besides, be your word against mine. No, I wouldn't. Stop this whole thing out. Two cops camp out to bust their front. What have you been doing the last month? What did you commit to? Oh, don't you throw that in my face. I work hard to provide, and 36000 a year doesn't cut it. You do the same thing. I wouldn't do the same thing. Does your word mean nothing to you? You signed the same thing we did, and you're throwing it down the toilet for what? An extra thousand a month? Adam, you've been lying to all of us, Shane. Your friends, your son, to God? Adam. I'm a fellow officer and a friend. You do not want to do this. You're right. I don't. Turn around. Put your hands on the wall. You're under arrest. This is a mistake. This is a mistake. You're going to burn us all. Is that what you want? Is that really what you want? Is this what you want? I'll agree to Adam. We are doubly accountable. Man, powerful to just see a picture of compromise having to be addressed. It's not always pretty, is it? Amen. So we're going to dive in. If you've got your Bibles, uh, you can get there with me in the book of Judges. I'm going to be moving from chapter 13 through chapter 16, so you'll have to speed read with me. I'll throw some uh, uh, scriptures on the board with you to kind of track with you. But I've got to tell you what's happening in the story right now because it's powerful. In this moment, uh, the, the people of God, the Israelites, they're inhabiting the land that God's called them to, but they're struggling because they didn't obey God completely and wipe out the folks that were already there. There were some places where they didn't do that, and they made some compromise. And as a result, they are constantly kind of waging war against people that God had kind of called them to deal with, but they hadn't dealt with. And so what's happening is these people come in, uh, and there's a cycle of behavior that happens in the book of Judges. I'm going to actually put it on the screen so you can kind of know what I'm talking about. There's a, a, a graph here I want to show you. And it's a cycle of behavior that happens throughout the book of Judges. And time and time again, there's peace in the land and Israel serves the Lord. Then Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then God punishes Israel and Israel gets enslaved and the people that they didn't conquer and deal with come back in. Then Israel cries out to the Lord again. So God raises up a judge. Israel gets delivered and then there's peace in the land until Israel walks away from the Lord and begins to start this pattern again. Now, how many of you know we do the same thing over and over again and we hope for a different result is insanity, right? So they're in this cycle of insanity. And during this cycle of insanity, God's constantly raising up people who will lead them to victory and they overcome sin and they turn their hearts back to God. And one of those people is a guy named Samson. Now, Samson is incredible for a lot of reasons. Um, his story starts in uh, chapter 13 of the book of Judges. And the people, um, we, could, we could lose that, the people who he's dealing with are the Philistines. And we hear the word Philistines all the time. They're still around in David's time, so we know that Samson doesn't fully deal with them. As a matter of fact, in chapter 13, verse 5, it says he begins, he begins to deal with them. 
uh, because the boy is to be Nazarite. Um, if you get to the second part of that, uh, it says that he, uh, it says he'll take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And some version says he'll begin to do it. So he doesn't actually finish the thing God's called him uh, to do there. But God raises up Samson. Now, Samson has an incredible story. Number one, because the people at this time aren't crying out for a deliverer. It's the only time in Judges that a judge gets raised up, but they're not crying out for a deliverer. They've been uh, invaded by the Philistines. They're a seafaring people. They actually worship a fish god and a bunch of other gods, and they land in uh, Gaza and Canaan, and they invade. And it says for about 40 years they run things in Israel, but Israel never calls out for deliverance from them. And the reason why is the way the Philistines run things is tricky. Instead of coming in and just conquering and murdering and slaughtering and stealing, they come in and they just incorporate their culture into Israel's culture. And they say, hey, you guys are cool, but we want to get married with you. We want to start families with you. We want to live with you. We want you to worship our gods. Your God's cool, too. We'll just all kind of live in this beautiful kaleidoscope of mixed cultures. Only one thing's wrong with that is some point you got to stand for something and god had called this group of people just like he calls us to stand for something it's a pretty interesting strategy that the enemy uses over and over and over and over and over again i'll just leave that there um so that's what's happening there's no there's not a war that's happening there's just an invaded culture and they've taken control and they've said, hey, you can worship God, but you've got to allow us to worship too, and we're going to get married to you, and we're going to worship us, and we're going to do all the things that you do, but you're going to do the things that we do. And pretty soon there's not going to be a you anymore. There's just going to be kind of all of us together. And that's what's happening. So in the middle of that, while no one's crying out to the Lord, you see Samson's mother and father, and they can't have a kid. So somebody's crying out to the Lord. It's not for deliverance, but at least they're crying out to the Lord. And an angel of the Lord shows up and says, hey, you're going to have a baby. And you're, hey, sounds pretty familiar. We're going to get into that story again next week, but it's going to be a little different. But, but, but here, you're going to have a baby, and you're going to make him a Nazarite. Now, in uh, Numbers chapter 6, it tells us what a Nazarite is. But a Nazarite is a specific kind of vow that someone would make to the Lord for a specific kind of lifestyle. It's like a vegan no, it's not at all like a vegan, but it's, it's like a specific kind of I'm going to have a specific diet. I'm going to have a specific kind of lifestyle. I'm going to do it for my whole life, but I'm going to do it for the Lord. And so the Nazarite vow had three critical components to it. Component number one, you're really familiar with. Don't cut your hair. Right. You're going to be visually discernible to people. They're going to know that you're something different about you by how you look. Right. Number two, you may be less familiar with this, but you're not going to drink or consume any alcohol whatsoever. You're going to abstain from anything that might have a controlling influence in your life. You're going to abstain from that. That was number two. And number three, you're never going to touch a dead body. You're going to remain ceremonially clean in that culture, okay? Not a dead body of an animal, not a dead body of a person. You don't mess with any of those things because you might be called upon to represent God at any point, and those things in that culture made you ceremonially unclean, and you couldn't represent God. So those are the three distinguished... Run that back on the uh, thing, and we'll try it again. Those are the three (laughs) distinguishing characteristics that Samson was born into. So the angel tells his mom, that's what you're going to do with Samson. So Samson grows up. 
He's got long hair. Everybody knows who he is. He doesn't partake of any alcohol. His behavior is set apart, and he doesn't touch any dead bodies. So we get to about chapter 14, and something incredible happens. Now, just because Samson was dedicated this way didn't mean that the rest of their culture didn't apply to him. So because he was a Nazarite didn't mean he also didn't have to follow the Ten Commandments. He also didn't have to follow the law of Moses. All of the rest of the things of their culture also applied to him. But on top of that, he had these three distinguishing characteristics. You're set apart from God, for God. All of those things are the case, right? So he has to avoid contact with wine. No touching a dead body. Don't get your hair cut. Okay. Judges, let's skip to 14. Chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw there a young Philistine woman. Now, did he talk to her? Did he get to know her? Did he fall in love with her? He just saw her. He saw a woman. And it says, when he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a woman in Timnah. So go get her for me as a wife. I don't know about you, but this story just immediately goes off the rails for me. He hasn't talked to her. They didn't have a cup of coffee yet. He doesn't know what her favorite color is. He's just like, hey, I saw something I like. Go get it for me, mom and dad. And then he goes back to his mom and dad, and he's like, go get her for me. And something's weird about that, too. I don't know. But chapter 14, verse 3. And his father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all of our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. Wow. Now, this story has already lost me. I'm, I, I can just be done. I can put it down like Samson, you know, knucklehead, done. There's no way this is going to work out well for him. What's intriguing about this is we, we get into the Nazarite level of thinking about what he's responsible for. We forget that he's also responsible to the Lord. He's been received since he was young. Uh, the law of Moses that in this culture, in this place, they're not supposed to intermarry with these folks. They're not supposed to mix cultures with these folks. But he's also grown up in a time where everybody else is doing it. And so it seems normal. His peers, his friends, everyone else is doing this. And so everyone's doing it, so it just must be okay. Compromise, right? I know I'm not supposed to do it, but everybody else is doing it. I know that's not what God's best for me is, but it's just the way things are done today. In today's culture, in today's time, in today's marketplace, in today's school, in today's whatever, it's just how it gets done right now. And I know that's not exactly what God wants us to do. It's just how we do it. Wow, just a little compromise. Doesn't seem like a big compromise. Just a little incremental compromise. So we move on. Where am I at here? Um, verse 4. His parents didn't know that this was from the Lord, where he was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Man, we can go far with that, that God had allowed this to happen, because he doesn't marry this woman, and it doesn't go well. So why would God allow us to go down a road that we know is not necessarily what's best for us, and it's not going to work out at the end, because maybe we're supposed to learn something through that process. I just maybe, but it, it was power, it was powerful for me to understand that God let him go in this process. He said, "I want that." God said, "Go for it. See how that works out." Awesome. Uh, verse five. So Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and his mother. He's a mama's boy at this point still. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. Now we got to think about something here. You and I think of Samson, and we know that he's got, like, supernatural strength. Up until this point, Samson doesn't know that he's got supernatural strength. 
He just knows he's set apart for God. He just knows that his birth was special, that God, God said you have to be set apart and holy. But he doesn't know anything about supernatural strength. That hasn't come into the picture yet. And so I don't know about you, but if I'm walking and I see a lion coming towards me, between the fight and flight response, I'm going to have the flight response. Just so we're clear. And I'm just going to hope I'm a faster runner than you. Right? And that you're scrumptious and fill them up. And says, in the spirit, the spirit of the Lord, verse 6, sorry, came upon him in power. And then he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. Both of which are disgusting. The fact that he might have just torn a young goat apart is bizarre. But the fact that he tore this lion apart is also bizarre and disgusting, but also incredible. Here's something that's just a free nugget. It's not even in there. Uh, Here's just a free nugget. Sometimes the lions that we face are just the way God gets us to activate our faith so we can realize how powerful we really are. And I think it's pretty profound that he didn't have something in his hands because otherwise his dependency would have been on himself. But sometimes we face things that we don't think we can face and we don't know how to do it. And your testimony after the fact is, I never would have believed that I'm someone that could have come through what I've been through because I didn't have anything in my hands. I just had my God. But now my faith has been activated. And I ain't scared of no more lions because I know who's got my back. You guys are with me? Whoo! That was pretty good. Just in case you missed that, he's got your back. And sometimes the lion isn't the thing that is out there to destroy you. It's the thing that's there to activate you. Samson's never the same after this moment. He doesn't have a thing in his hands, yet he faces that lion. That's pretty good. Oh, okay. Then, then it, he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Verse 7, I love this. Then he went down and he talked with the woman and he liked her. <laughs> Woo! Thank goodness he managed to get some words in with this poor young lady since he already had arranged their lives together. And at least he likes her. Um, verse 8, sometime later he went back to marry her. He turned aside and he looked at the lion's carcass. And in it, he hears a And he's like, hey, there's that lion I ripped apart. I don't know about you, but if I ripped the lion apart, all my friends would know. They would know right where it is. I'd be bringing them. We'd be going every week. It'd be the story I told every time. Like, you got a story. Let me tell you my story. Oh, yeah, that time that you did that. How about, did you ever rip a lion apart? I don't think so. And you don't believe me? Let's go. Right. We're walking over and we're talking about ripping lions apart. That's it. But he doesn't do it. He just leaves it there. He's chill. He's got mad chill at this point. Right. He just he's like, whatever. But he hears the buzzing and he goes to the carcass of the lion. And inside of that carcass, bees have made a home and there's honey in there. And he's a man and man can reach into beehives and get honey. Right. Come on, fellas. No. All right. I don't know. He does. He's like, I'll have some of that. Mm, That's my honey. From my honey pot that I left right there. And he's eating the honey. And he's like, yeah, this is good. I got some honey. I'm going to fast forward you through the story a little bit for time's sake. But you can follow along. Make sure I don't make any of this up. He, he then goes to his wedding feast. And at his wedding feast, he throws a party. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. Was he supposed to touch that lion's carcass? Woo! But there's honey in there. Who would leave honey on the side of the road? Nobody. 
That's good stuff. It looks good. It looks delicious. And I want it. Just a little compromise. Just a little. So he goes to his wedding party. And they throw a party. Now, this is the Philistines throwing this party. And I just got to be honest with you. There's alcohol at this party. Okay. They're throwing a wedding party. As a matter of fact, they were so concerned that he didn't bring enough. They gave him 30 extra friends. They brought in an extra wedding party to beef up the party. It's like if you threw a party at your house and not everybody showed because you weren't as popular as maybe you thought you were going to be. And your friends were like, this party's lame. We're calling our friends. And we at least got your house and your booze. So we're going to bring everybody over and party at your place. That's what's happening at this party. And Samson's having a good time. Now, what else is he not supposed to be around? Just saying. And he sees the woman that he's going to marry. He's excited about it. But he's kind of got a little high going because he's got this honey. And, you know, he sees his honey. He's got some honey. That's like a good day, right? And <laughs> lost. All right. And so anyways, they're at the party. And he starts bragging. And he's like, I got a riddle for you guys. What is sweet and a killer? And they don't know. And he's like, here's the, here's the deal. He's talking about the lion, right? And he, he gives them a little creative riddle. And, uh, and as, as he's telling the story to them, he says, you got seven days to figure out this riddle. And if you can't figure it out, you got to give me 30 sets of clothes and some money. And he's like, but if you figure it out, I'll give you 30 sets of clothes and some money. Now, you got to think there's 30 guys, so they only have to do one. But if he loses, how much has he got to do? 30. That's a bad bet, right? You can hedge your bet a little bit better than that. But he's confident. He's not worried about it. He's like, there's no way. Out of the lion, something sweet. Like, they don't know what I'm talking about, right? And so a couple days go by. They take the dare. He's like, you got seven days to figure it out. We're partying for seven days anyway, so it doesn't matter. So they're partying. They can't figure it out. They're getting frustrated. And in the midst of all of that, his wife, who's, this is her friends and family, they lean on her and they're like, hey, we're going to kill you if you don't tell us the answer to his riddle. She's like, I don't know this guy. We talked like one time, right? That's all she's got. She's like, I don't know the answer to his riddle. So you can jump to verse uh, 16 so you know I'm not making this up. Verse 16, it says, and Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing. You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. He says, I haven't explained it even to my father or mother. He's a mama's boy, much more than we give him credit for in here. All right, this guy loves his mom and dad. And he replied, so why would I explain it to you? It says, she cried the whole seven days of the feast. Ladies, let's talk for a minute about turning on the tears. Please go easy on us. It is kryptonite. We don't know what to do when you won't stop crying. We'll do whatever you say. We lose. We can't win that battle. Samson can't win that battle. You've got to be nicer to us than that, right? She cried for seven days. On the seventh day, it says he finally told her because she continued to press him. She in turn explained the riddle to her people. And then they tell him the answer to the riddle. Before the sun set on the seventh day, the men came to him and said, what's sweeter than honey? What's stronger than a lion? And then Samson says maybe the funniest verse in the whole Bible. It says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Now, I looked this up in the Greek, and it says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. No, it would have been Hebrew back then. I'm messing with you. But, uh, <laughs> but listen. He basically just demolishes her, and he's frustrated with him, and then something happens. It says what? It says the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord got on him, and he got fired up. Hold on, I lost it. 
And he lost him. And he went down to Ashkelon. He struck down 30 men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their clothes to those who explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went up to his father's house. So he's furious. He doesn't stay with his wife. He goes back home to dad. He pays it up. And however long it takes him to kill 30 guys and strip them. Weird. He pays the riddle, then he goes back up. It says something crazy. Verse 20. It says, and Samson's wife was given to the friend who had attended him at his wedding. See, the father's like, we're throwing a wedding feast, and she's of age, and you just left, and you're angry, and you just killed a bunch of people, and we blew it. So they gave the wife away. Now, Samson doesn't realize that. So verse 1 of chapter 15, it's about to get real. It says, later on in the time of the wheat harvest, Samson, he's cooled off now. He took a young goat, and he went to visit his wife, and he said, I'm going to go to my wife's room. But her father wouldn't let him go in. I was so sure that you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Thanks, Pops. Verse 3. Samson said to them, this time, catch this, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. I like this. He's like, just so you know what happens next, that's on you. You blew it with me here. You took my wife. You gave her away. And so whatever happens now. Now, sometimes we, we do that, right? When we, when we hit a spot of anger or wrath where we're just like, okay, now I have permission. You said, the, you said the trigger word. You talked about my mom. I don't know what it was, right? You did whatever it was that now the gloves are off and here comes the thunder, right? So here's Samson and he's ready to bring the thunder. And look at what he does, verse 4. It says he went out, he caught 300 foxes and he tied them to tail to tail in pairs. He fastened a torch to every pair. I'm not making this. This is in the word of God. He fastened a torch. Then he lifts the torch and he lets them loose in the crops and they burn down the food supply for this entire village. Now think about that. That's a big deal. That's a big, big deal. They burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards. And so a lot of things happen as the snowball hits. The Philistines are so angry at the family that they kill everyone. They kill the wife, the dad. They kill everyone, the new husband. They kill all of them. And then they want to kill Samson. So they sent a thousand men out to get Samson. The Israelites, they're not loyal to Samson. He ain't leaving nobody right now. They're like, you hothead are on your own. And he says, well, listen, I'll go down there and deal with it. You can tie me up. Just promise you won't kill me. He goes down there. He rips through the bindings. He finds the dead carcass, which, again, he's not supposed to touch, of a, of a donkey. He rips the mouth apart, <laughs> makes a weapon out of it, and he slaughters, it says, a thousand of the Philistines with this donkey's jawbone. Manly. Right? Manly. He's just like chest hairs just popping out as he's doing it. It's just, you know, you've got this what he do just swinging this thing and just manhandling a thousand people then he's thirsty and he's like god you let me do all this work and i'm gonna die of thirst and so god provides water and then something incredible happens the philistines back off they don't know what to make of this guy he is an animal ripping lions apart just ripping dead bodies apart and shredding them now wait was he supposed to touch that that's uh, another little compromise judges chapter 15 verse 20 Right after this happens, something amazing happens. It says, uh, chapter 15, verse 20. It says that Samson led Israel for how long? 20 years. Do you know how many times I read this story and didn't realize that Samson led the nation for 20 years? I just assumed he went from this to Delilah to dead. But for 20 years after that, he's now the man. 
He's got control of the whole thing, and they have peace because Samson's there. This is incredible. This is incredible. 20 years of success. That's tied for the third longest uh, of any of the judges. And for 20 years, they have peace. And then, chapter 16, we meet Delilah. You can jump to chapter 16, verse, uh, verse 4. And something happens to him. 20 years. Don't forget. 20 years of success. Incremental, incremental making decisions that are just compromises. And then 20 years of time goes by. I'm just a few degrees off. I'm really close to what God wants me to do. The power's there. I'm experiencing it. But 20 years of time have gone by now. You see what happened? Distance and time. 20 years of time. And it says sometime later, verse 4, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. I don't know if this hits you as profound. This hit me as so profound. I always thought of Samson, because of the first wife, as like lust-driven. She's good-looking, so I want her. It doesn't say that about Delilah. He didn't fall in lust with her. Right? As a matter of fact, if you hop up earlier, he was visiting prostitutes and all kinds of crazy things, right? Those degrees had taken him just farther and further away. Samson was used to being around beautiful women. Delilah's power over him had nothing to do with beauty. It had everything to do with he fell in love with her. He gave his heart to her. He fell in love with her. Verse 5, and it says, And the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. And each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. They're like, hey, you got this guy's heart. We have not been able to defeat him for 20 years. He's just beating the tar out of us, doing what he wants to do. And now, for the first time since, since this whole thing started, there's someone or something that has a piece of his what? His heart. Now, here's the thing. Samson, early on, had a very strong vision of who he was supposed to be. But he gave his heart to someone he liked. And that vision became divided. He went from vision to division. And that division over time took him further and further away from his vision. And now he's given his heart to somebody who isn't trustworthy, who doesn't align with his vision. Verse 6. So Delilah tells Samson, tell me the secret of your strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Now, think about this. What kind of bond do you have with someone when they are asking, how can I kill you? And you're like, oh, isn't that sweet? Aren't you precious? You really love me. What kind of depth of heart connection do you have with something that wants to kill you, but you love it so much that you're giving yourself to it and you know it wants to kill you? You know the end result will be your death. She's laying out. She's not hiding what she's trying to do. She's not even trying to to mock it. Here's the problem. We start wondering and thinking, these are the things I deserve, I want, I'm entitled to. I've been ruling for 20 years. My heart got broken. Delilah was successful because 20 years ago he gave his heart to the wrong person and it blew up. And he's carrying a wound that he's never dealt with. 
All the pretty women from those, over those 20 years haven't solved this hole in his heart that he gave his heart to the wrong place and it blew up in his face and he never got well. He never got whole. He never came back to God. He never realigned his vision. He stayed in division for his entire life. And at the end of that, there was this moment where he said, I think I'm entitled to that. I want it, even if it kills me. Even if I know it wants to kill me. I want to recapture what got given away when I first compromised. Hmm. Anything that tries to separate you from your vision, you just need to run from it. Joseph taught us that, right? Just run from it. Judges chapter 16, verse 15. Let's jump ahead. She said to him, this sounds familiar. How can you say I love you and your heart isn't with me? You've deceived me these three times. So he keeps telling her fake ways to tie him up and to, and to take away his power. And then he goes to bed and she's tied up and she thinks she's taken away his power. And he wakes up and there's men in the room to, trying to kill him. And he's like, oh, aren't you sweet? And he breaks out and he wipes them out again. And he just keeps doing it over and over again. Three times. Three times. That's like waking up in the hospital and being like, oh, she tried to kill me. Isn't she adorable? That didn't work, though. I love her. Are you serious? It's insane. I'm going to read to you. This is from the New American Standard Version because I like the way it says it a little better than the NIV. It says, how can you say I love you when your heart isn't with me? Right? Your heart has to be with me. Where is his heart supposed to be with? God. She's like, I need your heart to be with me if you really love me. If you really want to be with me, you'll give me first place in your life. Why is your heart not with me? Mm, You've deceived me these three times. You haven't told me where your great strength is. And it came about (laughs) that she pressed him daily with her words and she urged him. And listen to this. And his soul was annoyed to the point of death. I'm just going to let that hang there for a minute. And you draw your conclusions. She got on his case so much that his soul was annoyed to the point of death. She just, it's like, why aren't you telling me? And listen, verse 17. So he told her all that was in his heart. And said to her, a razor's never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite from, to God from my mother's womb. And if I'm shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I'll be as weak and like any other man. And most of you know where the story goes from here. She shaves his head, and he becomes enslaved, and they gouge out his eyes. Now listen, he goes from a vision to division to no vision. And it's not till he hits no vision that he starts looking for his vision again. Who I'm supposed to be, who God called me to be, who called raised me up to be. And some of us have been on that journey for too long. We are looking for the vision, what's supposed to be in our life. Some of you have been looking for the vision for a long time, wondering how are you going to get there? How to get there never changed for him. Just keep living for God and you'll be in the vision. 
Just keep obeying his commands and you'll be in the vision. Just stay in his word and you'll be in the vision. Wash, recycle, rinse, repeat. Keep staying there and you'll be fine. The problem is there's been some compromise, some moments that have taken us just incrementally away from that. And and what started is just a little bit like I don't have to do that all the time. Do I, God? I don't have to pray all the time. I don't have to stay in the word. I don't have to be faithful with what you've entrusted me with. I just need to do this for this season because that's what everybody else is doing. And it just takes us incrementally away. And we go from vision to division. Jesus said it this way. He said, no one can serve two masters. Now, he got specific. and He said, you can't serve both God and money. But the principle is in there. You can't serve two masters. And eventually you'll be division. And when if you're in division for long enough, you'll find yourself with no vision. Now, here's what's amazing about his story. A couple things. One, I was thinking about this. I was looking for a description of Samson. What does Samson look like? Think about it for a second. You got a picture in your head. I've been talking about Samson for a while now. You got a picture in your head. Basically me, but like this, right, blown up a little bit more with hair, right? No? Okay, I don't know what your picture is. You got a picture of Samson in your head. In my mind, I got like a Terminator picture of Samson, and, right? No mullet, though. Just like solid flowing locks. And he's got a donkey's jawbone in his hand. And he's just like ripped up and he's glistening, right? But here's the thing. Time and time again in the story, they are shocked and amazed at his power. If he looks like Arnold and he's ripping through people and he's like, you know, hoped out, why would they be impressed or why would they be amazed at his power? We know what Goliath looks like. Seven feet, job of the giant, right? I don't know. Right? He's a monster. We know what Saul looked like. We know Saul was taller and better looking than everybody else. That's why he got to be the first king, right? We don't know what Samson looks like. We know he's got some braided long hair, and that's it. <laughs> but here's the thing. Why would they be shocked at his ability if he was ripped? Why would they be shocked if he was ripped? What if he wasn't ripped? What if what was powerful about him wasn't what the eye could see, was what was on the inside? What if what was powerful about him was something different? That he had been set apart. That he had vision of what he'd been called to do. That he was directionally aligned with the will of God. And they didn't understand how he could have gotten his power. In fact, time and time again, Delilah ties him up and they think that's going to be enough. But that's not enough. His power comes from somewhere else. My mind was blown at this picture of Samson, just a normal guy who wanted so badly to heal the wound of a first love that went incredibly awry when he was a young man, still hanging with his parents, still living with his family. He gave his heart away to someone he shouldn't have given his heart away. And it created in him a pattern of compromise that led him farther and farther away. In the course of 20 years, it was so far away that he willfully gave his heart. Here's the thing that's crazy. His power, it may have disappeared when his hair got cut, but his hair getting cut wasn't his kryptonite. Giving his heart away was his kryptonite because if he never gave his heart away, she never gets the hair. He's, a matter of fact, not even sure that that's true. In the story, he's not even sure if cutting his hair is going to be his kryptonite. 
He just gives away the internal secret of his heart to someone who doesn't deserve it, to something that isn't trustworthy, to something that, oh, compromise has allowed to become normal in his life. Compromise will make things normal in your life that are horrific. That if you looked at from a distance, you'd say, no way, never. I'll never do those things. I'll never put that into my body. I'll never put that into my eyes. I'll never be in that place. I'll never give my heart to that. I'll never do. I would from a distance. You would never do it. But subtle compromise makes normal what would be horrific if you were to step outside yourself and look at it. Why? Because our heart just goes with it and takes us to a place that we would never have let ourselves go. And we give our power away. Samson, one of the most successful judges, 20 years of success, a degree away. He went from having vision to division to no vision. Now, here's the final thought, and then I'll let us go. We're a little bit late. God wasn't done with him just because he exploded his vision. The purpose and call in his life and the destiny for his life wasn't gone because he compromised. There was still hope for him. He just had to get broken. So that he could see that God still loved him, that God could still use him and God could still move in him. And the end of his story, while bloody and horrific, is beautiful because God empowers a broken person with nothing in their hands. The same kind of person who ripped apart a lion, who was driven by faith, not by what I think I can do, but what I know he can do. And he accomplished what God designed him to accomplish, even if you've been living in division. Even if you've been broken and right now have no vision, God's able to restore. And he can give you, I heard it said this way, he can give you the ability to envision what he can do and bring hope and restore life into you. God, thanks. Thanks for your provision. Thanks for your word. Thanks for challenging our hearts and making us, God, stronger, not because on the outward we have some kind of ability, but because on the inward we have access to the power of the Holy Spirit and your word. And it changes us and it transforms us and it grows us. And, God, I pray right now for those of us who have just been looking for a vision. God, would we align with your word and with your will? And would we separate ourselves from the things that would ensnare us and just simply live in your will? And then you would, God, your word says you, the steps of the righteous are ordered of the Lord. You'll give us vision. For those of us that have been battling division, we know where we're supposed to go, but we're just a few degrees off. And things that, that, that maybe even just a year ago or a month ago or ten years ago would have been horrific now seem normal. But our heart is with the things that are trying to kill us, God. I pray you would bring us and restore us from division back to vision. God, that we would repent and lay down the things that have caused division in our hearts and our lives and our relationships. God, for those of us that have just exploded and we have no more vision, God, you make all things new. I don't pray for a do-over. I pray for fresh beginnings. Give us strength. I pray through this holiday season that we would have strength, the kind of strength that comes from understanding of who we are in you, though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we were renewed day by day. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
And man, I took you a little bit long. I, I pray that the story of Samson will challenge your heart, that you would, you would, even just this week in this holiday season, you would just guard your heart. Trust it to what's trustworthy. Love you. Would you stand? Give someone a hug. God bless you. Have an awesome week in the Lord. Come back next week. We'll get into the Christmas story. We'll start talking about angels and births and all kinds of fun stuff. Amen. If you can help us throw some chairs. Uh...